Hello, my name is Ben Friedman here from Ben and Brian See a Movie, and today is episode 64. And to be honest, I didn't have a movie this week. I was trying to debate whether I just throw a movie that I had seen recently on uh, to discuss for this one, because I'm going to be doing this episode solo. And then I just decided, you know what? If I'm not going to have anyone else this week, I kind of just want to do my own thing uh, and talk something bigger. So on the show, Ben and Brand see a movie. We're not talking a movie today. We're talking a multitude of movies. And more specifically, we're talking a film studio. Today's episode is going to be completely centered around the film studio A24. I'm going to do the normal stuff that I do, the film historian, the hill to die on, my great debate. But yeah, I just decided, you know what, if I can do whatever I want, let's just kind of do whatever I want today. And we're going to be back to a fairly regular normal show next week. Uh, I can announce right now. I will be having writer for The Onion, Spencer Roth Rose, on next week to talk the film Top Gun. So I'm very excited about that. I'm doing a few other things coming up. I have a few other guests lined up, and uh, Branson will be on the show soon enough. And yeah, but I just wanted to give that update. That's what's going on. That's the plan. And we're just going to dive in. So welcome to Ben and Brand See a Movie, the show where we talk movies. All right, welcome to the show, Bed and Brand, see a movie, the show where uh, I'm talking movies today. And like I already teased, this is not going to be a normal show. I am talking a film studio instead, uh, just because, you know, I wanted to. They have a new film coming out this week called Men, which is directed by Alex Garland, who has previously done the films Annihilation and Ex Machina. And yeah, I was just excited to be seeing this film. I'm seeing that this week. So I'm very excited for that. It. I just thought it would make for an interesting show because I'm someone who's recently just gone more into A24. You have to understand, A24 becomes a company in 2012, I believe starts releasing films in 2013. And then it feels like the peak of them, not the peak because I think they're still in the peak, but I mean, when they really became a name is probably when they win the best picture with Moonlight in 2016. Uh, 16, which means I'm in college at that time. Uh, I'm in college from 2016 to 2020. So a lot of the bigger projects that uh, A24 made that they're kind of known for, I wasn't really watching as many movies because I was in college at that time. So there's a bunch of their works that I have missed. Now I've caught up a great deal. I went through, I've only seen 13 A24 movies. So when I'm talking about the top 10 films of a24 it's a list that doesn't uh encompass nearly enough to really be a comprehensive thing but i'm fine with the 10 movies i chose i think these 10 movies are very popular movies people love these movies so i'm not worried about the content of it but i am just letting you know there's going to be movies off this list for instance like moonlight which i still haven't seen i tried watching it last night could not find it on streaming or other movies even like the lobster uh that just I haven't gotten the chance to see yet. So I'm planning on doing a rewatch of all A24 films. So that is coming soon in the future, and I will be reviewing those films on my channel. I think it's going to be a fun project that I definitely want to try uh, to go through, just go through. I One of the things you learn uh, is if you want to learn more about film, watch something 
in total, which means uh, Drew McWeeny had this quote where if you want to learn about film, watch every film released in a given year. So pick a year and just try to watch every film that comes out of that. You're going to learn a lot about film. I'm doing this thing right now where I'm going back from 1900 to present day, watching one movie a year and really trying to study what that movie brought to not only Hollywood filmmaking, but also just the general audiences, all that, how it's shaped, how it is a reflection of the times. And I'll be honest, I've been learning a lot through that. So I just thought it'd be interesting, like I said, just to talk about a studio like A24 today, which has become so popular. It's become kind of synonymous, I think, with horror. I think when people think A24, I think they've put their first, like, their mind goes to horror. They're not obviously just a horror company. I think they've just made so many buzzy horror films that people just automatically associate with it. I think they associate with that and weird. I think those are the two words that have been described uh, for A24. And I just want to talk about that, where the studio comes from, their rise, what makes them unique, and then just talk about these films and how they kind of fit into that A24 mold. And yeah, so that's the show. That's the overview. So I guess let's just jump into this. And I'm going to do the film historian, which this week will be the studio historian. I'm going to be breaking down the studio of A24, which is founded in August 2012 by three film veterans, Daniel Katz, David Fenkel, and John Hodges. You know, Katz came from the fiscal world working at Guggenheim Partners, which was partnered with Verizon in the early 2010s. Fenkel was the president and partner of Oscoscope, which was an independent film company. And John Hodges was head of production with Big Beach, a studio best known for their indie comedy dramas, most famously Little Miss Sunshine. So it's really key to understand this point because two of these guys came from independent cinema. And the other one came from financing, which kind of shows how the, I think it shows a really important trend right there, right away, is that it's independent cinema funded with a more than independent budget, which means that there's maybe more allotted money towards the filmmakers making these films. And I think that's exemplified by the three guys running it, the guy who's fiscally, uh, responsible or just fiscally aware and true independent filmmaker studios guys at first a24 was merely the distributor never the creator uh, they were buying up films but they were never actually making their own films uh, their first theatrical release is a roman coppola film a glimpse inside the mind of charles swan iii which stars uh, Charlie Sheen, who at this time is going by his name, Charlie Estrada. Uh, do recall that at this time, uh, Sheen had just had his kind of public meltdown. So he makes this film. Uh, I remember this film coming out. It got horrible reviews, very disliked by the general public, uh, very much mocked. But this is where they get their start. Uh, Roman Coppola is a guy, of course. Uh, sorry, Roman Coppola. Let me. <laughs> Roman Coppola is a guy, of course, from the Coppola family. He's been working uh, at this time in his career, uh, 2013. That means he's already made Moonrise Kingdom with Wes Anderson, which is probably the most prolific of his works with Wes Anderson. But he's also been a co-writer on uh, the Darjeeling Limited and uh, Life Aquatic. So this guy's kind of getting known. Uh, he has a little bit more of a push after Moonrise Kingdom. I think he gets a little bit more stardom. 
obviously a film with Charlie Sheen post the two and a half men incident is going to be a hard film to sell to an audience. And this film made like $250,000 in the box office, despite having a cast that included Bill Murray. But regardless, this, this is where they start and they bought the film. They distributed not much is uh, said about the studio or much thought is put about it. A few months later, is actually, I think, where the movie heads got introduced to A24, which means the general audience is still probably not particularly aware of A24. And I say general audience knowing that probably everyone who is a general audience member isn't really paying attention to studios outside of maybe Disney, maybe in some exceptions, uh, Warner Brothers or Universal's. But uh, when I'm saying general audience, I'm talking about the people who would listen to a show like this, a show that is centered around movies. So one where people who care about movies a little bit more, who put a little bit more research into movies, who think about movies a little bit more, this is where they start becoming aware of a film studio like A24. And I think this is the first glimpse that we're seeing where a more widestream movie-going audience becomes aware of it and it's in 2013 with the film uh directed by harmony corines called spring breakers which stars james franco as a drug dealer just in an insane amount of makeup pretty incredible makeup uh, on him doesn't look anything like himself vanessa hudgens and selena gomez uh there's a few reasons why this film is significant one it was crazy controversial when it came out uh if you know anything about Harmony Corrine's work uh, with, I believe it's kids or some of uh, from the 90s, he's a guy that kind of lives in infamy. He is a guy who likes to push the envelope and he's a guy who shows stuff that maybe wide stream audiences aren't always the most comfortable with. And he's also a guy who just has a very strong stylistic style in his filmmaking uh, a lot of neon colors a lot of just trippy visuals and it's a weird thing because this film is marketed as kind of like a spring break movie i mean it's literally called spring breakers i think this movie was marketed for it looks like teenagers who were excited to see selena gomez and vanessa hudgens james franco being a very bankable star at that time with his seth rogan comedies this was a film that it felt like that was made for them. And yet when you see the film, it's not made for them in any intention. Anyone who is 16 going there to just have a fun time party film uh, in the vein of maybe the hangover or 21 and over, that's not the film they got. And it led to just a lot of divisiveness, people criticizing this movie. Uh, Vanessa Hudgens and Selena Gomez, you know, two famous Disney stars, Vanessa Hudgens, uh, a little bit more far attached from her run on Disney. Selena Gomez, I think being like only a year or two disattached from Wizards of Waverly Place. They're in the, you know, they're in the stew, they're in the pop culture, and they're young, beautiful actresses. Uh, the film's advertising them in bikinis. Selena Gomez I, is not even in the film for it's particularly long. She's, she kind of disappears, I think, not even halfway through. So it's just this weird thing of audience expectation versus what the film was. Uh, obviously controversial just because of, you know, 
the trailer showing Selena Gomez and Vanessa Hudgens taking a lot of drugs and partying it up in, uh, I believe it's Florida. And then the people who were excited to go see this film saw this film and it wasn't the party film they were expecting. And it just, it leads to this disattachment between audience expectations and what we got in reality, which I think is a very early sign of what becomes of A24. Because if you read a lot of their reviews, specifically in their horror genre, it always seems to be the main thing is, I thought this film was this, it wasn't. And that's a trend that continues on even to a recent film like X. I thought it was this type of film. It wasn't this type of film. And I feel a little bit ripped off. The other reason I wanted to bring up Spring Breakers, not only for how big of a film it was for A24, it also shows that the studio has a little bit more ambition. They run an Oscar campaign to get James Franco an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. Uh, so this would be 2013. So he would have been running up against the likes of, I think it's Bruce Stern for Nebraska, uh, Jonah Hill for The Wolf of Wall Street, I believe Bradley Cooper for American Hustles in there. But he's running against those likes. If really, I don't think there was ever really a shot of him getting the Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. But they were doing it, and it shows they had higher ambitions, and they were going for prestige with weird and independent. It's this thing that I I don't think a ton of audiences were ready for, and it shows how quick they were diving into it because, you know, by 2016, they do that. By 2016, they win the best picture status, which is a crazy quick turnaround for studios to just have uh come from its inception in 2012 to win best picture for the year 2016 that's a crazy turnaround and 2016 is the year that marks its first original production which is barry jenkins moonlight which goes on to win a ton of academy awards kind of brings mahershala ali to the front of uh uh actors makes barry jenkins a well-respected act uh director in the industry and Obviously, Moonlight is kind of famous now for the gaffe uh, against that in La La Land. But do think about that. La La Land was a huge, uh, not huge like budget-wise, but I mean, just it was released by a studio that had had years of Oscar experience, how to campaign. It had the budget. It had the stars. It had the kind of cultural relevance of just the music soundtrack being out there. It crossed over to a wide stream audience where Moonlight was truly an independent film that you had to go out of your way to see. And it wins Best Picture. That's a really big achievement for a studio to do that quick and against that level of competition. And from there, they just they kind of just skyrocket. And of course, as I note again for Moonlight, it's the first original production. This is the first one that they didn't just buy. They made this movie and they funded it. So to get that type of success is crazy. The studio skyrockets post that. They've had a ton of films, a lot of them marked with controversy, which we'll talk about a few of them. But I think what makes A24 who they are, since their inception, A24 has worked with such acclaimed indie filmmakers such as Harmony Korine, Sofia uh, Coppola, Kevin Smith. Kevin Smith, of course, a guy 
from Miramax in the 90s, which I think if there was any parallel to be had with A24, it has to be the Weinstein company Miramax. So to get him back in uh, working for A24 to release Tusk is, I think, a pretty big deal and kind of shows the shift of what's going on. Obviously, there's other reasons that uh, Weinstein goes out of Miramax struggles, and uh, you, you know those reasons. They also get filmmakers like Noah Baumbach, a guy who's been uh, working with, I believe it's Wes Anderson in the early 2000s. The Daniels, Gus Van Sant. Again, Gus Van Sant made one of the most famous independent features of cinema with Goodwill Hunting. So to get him on board, Paul Schroeder, Joe Colin of the Cohen brothers. I mean, another guy who, you know, he directed the tragedy of Macbeth recently. He's another guy that's independent cinema. So it's, interesting to see these really prolific names of independent cinema going over to a24 not only does a24 get these kind of established indie directors it also breaks us the likes of directorial careers like sean baker who did the florida project and most recently red rocket also brought us the safety brothers with good times and uncut gems robert eggers with the witch the the northman uh, and uh, what's the other one? Oh, The Lighthouse, which we'll talk about in a second. Ari Aster, who directs uh, Hereditary. It also then brings uh, actors who had no directorial experience and gives them a budget and a stage, basically, to make their films, whether that's Jonah Hill with mid-90s, whether that's Bo Burnham with 8th Grade, whether that's Greta Gerwig with Lady Bird. They're just the studio that seems to be willing to take chances and that filmmakers seem eager to work with. And I think this is really interesting because there's traits of an A24 film. One of the biggest being that it's independent cinema at its heart. There is D their DNA is not mainstream. These films are not made for mainstream audience sensibilities for the most part. This is a studio that prides themselves in being different and giving filmmakers freedom. And let's just kind of break that point down for a second. A studio that prides themselves in being different. Let's think about some of their more mainstream films for a second. Like I'm going to pull up The Disaster Artist, which is a pretty broad comedy that even if you haven't seen The Room, you can enjoy. That is a film made for Hollywood audiences, people who love film. And the more attachment you have to The Room, the more the jokes are going to work into you. It is not the broadest of broadest comedies, even though some of the humor itself within the script is broad. Even a film like Lady Bird is made with a certain demographic in mind, and it's uplifting female voices in a way that oftentimes uh, young adult films don't always capture. And it's the character of Lady Bird isn't always necessarily the most likable, neither is her mom, but it still captures some of that feel of, like, let's say, a classic John Hughes movie, but with kind of a millennial. Uh, DNA slash structure, and I think that's some of the stuff that allows us to work. Some of the other traits of that allows A24 to be successful is when you're giving filmmakers freedom, it allows them to be quite controversial, uh, way more controversial than, let's say, if you're making a film for Disney or Warner Brothers. Not saying that those films themselves can't be controversial, but they also are a studio trying to trying to meet a deadline, trying to meet, sorry, trying to meet a bottom line, trying to make sure they get the money back. 
they're they're not taking as many risk it feels like they are making films for mainstream audiences with wider appeal where a24 doesn't seem to be particularly interested in this their depiction of sex drugs and taboo subjects create divisiveness and it's going to turn off a good portion of american audiences to seeing this movie whether it's subjects like red rocket which deals with the porn industry the witch which deals with uh the salem witch trials a Puritan culture and the fanaticism of religion or spring breakers, which deals with sex, drugs, taboo subjects, all of that crazy crap. They don't care. And that's kind of what makes them again, who they are. It's just this feeling that they don't care. It's a level of freedom that you're allowed to get away with, with that. You're not really allowed to do with in any other kind of mainstream studio success, because whilst, a24 is independent. They are a studio with a proven track record of success in the fact that they win an Oscar. They've won multiple Oscars. They've gotten some of the biggest stars to be in their movies. This is a, not just this $1 million company that you can kind of do your thing and it's not going to have an audience. There's an audience built into A24 and there's going to be a level of respect within film going audiences and Hollywood itself. Some of the other traits that I think are really interesting is there's an aura of mystery that surrounds the studio and seeps over to the marketing of the films. And that's really true when it comes to the horror department. And when I talked about studio, uh, not studio X, when I talked about audience going expectations and it feels like there's been some mismarketing with the films, that's really true when it comes to their horror films. I'm just going to take a few examples. It comes from Night, The Witch, Predatory. Those three films are arguably marketed terribly. It Comes at Night seems much more, I think, in line of something maybe like a soccer movie uh, in the vein of kind of like maybe Halloween. Maybe I was thinking more of uh, A Quiet Place, but it's not. It's a lot more thoughtful. It's a lot more. Uh, it's a lot slower pace. The Witch is marketed as the witch it's supposed to be kind of the horror film within uh the salem rich trials puritan society again really slow burn it is the devil like prodding and it's so internal that the villain of the movie the external force is never really present and finally like a film like hereditary that's a film that looks like the exorcism and by all means sorry not the exorcism this is a film that looks like the exorcist and by all means it's not that film much more uh gross in certain scenes uh much more character driven performances and much more of a topic of grief uh than the exorcist it's these ideas these chances this mismarketing almost that seems to play in the favor for a24 when they don't like a film it adds this kind of wtf factor of the film you hear terms i think thrown around commonly with these three films and other ones it's shocking it's gross it's unpleasant it's disturbing it's unique it kind of builds the audience like up and it's kind of the weird thing you know you look at an average uh cinema score for an a24 film and it's usually not an a usually not even a b it's probably in the c in some cases d range which is a really low score which would usually indicate that audiences 
expectations have not been met because that's what cinema score is it's for all of its uh all of the grading what it means critical review it's basically what it's an audience aggregator for was something met was that expectation met for this film and when you're giving it a C or D, it means that the audience did not like the film that they were going to see and usually means that the film was not made for them, uh, that they feel like this was not the film that they were paying to see. But it adds this WTF factor like I talk about, where it's just like when you hear these terms, then people are like, wait, this film is disgusting, like it's disturbing, like it's unpleasant, all this stuff. It kind of keeps people kind of coming in and in it. And what happens is, while it may not appeal to the wide audience, you have those guys in the audience, guys and gals in the audience who are just like, that's interesting. I like that. And then it just kind of keeps building and building to a place where I think A24 has gotten to the place where there's a pretty name recognition behind them. And I think it's because they started off so small, so independent and all that and getting the audience in slowly and slowly and kind of dissatisfying a majority of their audience and even now i still don't think uh even one of their bigger things films like everything everywhere all at once which is a film i'm going to talk about soon it's not a film that everyone's going to enjoy some of its sensibilities that the daniels bring into it are just weird they're not going to connect with everyone my grandma's not going to like everything everywhere all at once but that doesn't matter because a certain audience is going to like it and they're going to keep coming and that audience is only going to keep growing because they know this is the type of product A24 is making. Since its inception, A24, I think, has done such a great job at pulling young, influential stars into their movies. And I, I, you could define young as a few ways. You could even define someone like James Franco or Joel Egerton or... Uh, aquafina coming into one of their films as a young actor i'm defining it a little bit different here i'm saying a young influential star in the sense that they are a young actor trying to break convention somebody that we have an idea of who they are and i an identity before they make an a24 film and they come here to break uh their preconceived notions about them Take Vanessa Hudgens and Selena Gomez in Spring Breakers, where they're in skimpy bikinis taking drugs, partying with James Franco. Pretty controversial, again, considering that they were both just recently Disney stars. Take Emma Watson pole dancing in the bling ring in 2013, two years after Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2 where she has been a child actor, I think, since the age of 9 or 10, and now all of a sudden we're seeing her in a little bit of new of a light. Take Jenna Ortega recently in X, where she's filming a porno in X. It allows these young actors to help reinvent themselves, and it doesn't always have to be risque. I think the way I was presenting it right there is it allows women uh, actresses to be kind of seen in a different light, as a from a child to an adult that's not always the case uh sometimes it just helps them reinvent who they are as an actor whether that's brie larson going from a little bit more of a smaller indie comedy a little bit of a light dramatic feel to her to kind of just giving this tour de force performance in uh room 
where she wins Best Actress, whether that's Aquafina, who is a comedic actress, proving her dramatic talents in The Farewell, or whether that's Adam Sandler showcasing a new side of himself in Uncut Gems. It's these bold choices that these actors are making with A24, which I think is another staple of an A24 film. You hear a weird name like that thrown in, all of a sudden it's a little bit more intriguing. What are they going to do? What type of film are they going to make? Because you know you're not getting a typical Adam Sandler shtick. You're not going to get the typical Aquafina shtick. You're getting something new. And sometimes new is, can feel really exciting. And in the case of A24, it almost always does. A few other factors that I think are traits that are heavily used within A24 is female directors. They're giving voice to female talent, whether that's Greta Gerwig, Lulu Wang, Helena Rajin, Josephine Decker, Joanna Hogg, Sofia Coppola, Kelly Rickard, Kate and Laura Bolivy, and Anna Bowden, just to name a few. That's not even all of them. They're giving voices to female directors. And that does not mean it's equal by any means. That does not mean that women directors are getting the same chances, but it's the studio allowing women directors a chance to make their film without restrictions and really giving them a voice that other studios have been lacking. Again, A24 is not perfect. Uh, there's still a lot of progress to be made. Uh, if you notice that list, there was not a ton of people of color uh, in the list of women directors. So there is still progress to be had, but the fact that they're making those strives gives it a millennial sensibilities. Gives it a young person sensibilities in another way. You're also looking at, I just mentioned people of color uh, in the studios. You also get that with filmmakers like Barry Jenkins in the cast of Moonlight or the cast of Everything Everywhere All at Once or other actors like Jonathan Majors, Aquafina. Director Lulu Wang, Lakeith Stainfield, Minari, Denzel Washington being in The Tragedy of Macbeth, Kid Cudi being in uh, X. They're giving these actors chances and roles that typically haven't been there, especially in independent cinema. Independent cinema has given great voices to uh, a diverse and a multitude of directors. And yet it's also still lax. And it feels like A24 is trying to do that. Now, let me say that with a huge asterisk. I think the first real film made with a cast that is not predominantly white is Moonlight, which means it took four years in its inception to really get there. And that list is pretty small that I just read off compared to the amount of white actors, white directors that uh, are actually in A24. So again, it's not perfect. But I think that there's a conscious effort being placed to make sure that a studio like this is trying to incorporate diverse voices. And I think audiences respond to that. We see that this is a trend. Anyone who tells you that diversity, forced diversity, whatever you want to call that, whatever the terms they want to throw is killing Hollywood, it's completely BS. All it's doing is helping Hollywood. The films that are uh, most successful, some of the most successful films, I should say, that we've seen in the past decade have been with predominantly uh, cast who are not white, directors who are not white. And that's a really important thing to note because it shows that there is a craving for diverse storytelling. And 
824 is lending itself to do that. Again, progress is not the means, the end. Progress has to keep continuing and you have to build on that and you have to keep putting the effort to achieve that. But it does show, I think, the sensibilities and why audiences are responding to a studio like this in droves. And that kind of brings me to my last point. This does not mean every film is made by a young actor and director, but it does help establish A24 as the studio for younger audiences. It's kind of created a Pavlo effect where when certain members of the audience see an A24 logo, they are immediately eager slash intrigued. This feels like a studio for young people's sensibilities, whether you want to say that's millennial, whether you want to say that's Gen X, whatever that may be, it feels like a studio that is trying to be for young audiences. This is not a studio that feels like it's concerned about getting, let's say, my grandma, my mom in uh, the films, but rather is a studio really concerned about getting young people in and letting the word of mouth build there through social media. They've been a They've been a company that has really relied on social media to build buzz for their movies. And it's very clearly that it's intentional. And for all of these things, I think this is the traits of A24. And they're like no other film studio I've seen. A24 has made themselves the brand of their movies. It's almost comparable to Miramax, though. I think they may have overlapped Miramax. But again, I wasn't around in the 90s for the most part. So I don't really know what the culture around Miramax was at the time. Of course, they had the Tarantino, the Kevin Smith films. But it really feels like right now, A24 is often the selling point of the movie. They always make sure the A24 is clearly marketed in the trailers and the marketing. It's because there is going to now be an audience who's just going to come out and see every A24 film. I was talking to Chris, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago. And we were talking about the newest release uh, film, Men and Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Both of these films coming out uh, this summer. He also brought up Marcel, uh, the Shell movie. I can't remember the full title of that. And when we were doing our top 10 most anticipated movies of the summer, I believe we both had a minimum of two A24 films. Uh, I think he might have even had three. And he kind of said the phrase where it's just like, A24 doesn't really miss for me. I'm eager to see all their movies. He's the type of audience member that A24 is trying to get. The audience that just keeps coming back and back for these movies and that he's the guy, you know, telling all his friends about it, uh, talking about it on social media, you know, coming on my show and talking about it. All of that, that's the type of audience that they want. The people who are just going to keep seeing their films because they like the films that they're making and the style that they make it and really do think no other studio makes it like A24. So with that all said, those are the traits, characteristics, and history of A24. And that's kind of also just kind of encompasses my hill to die on. There are a studio like no other giving voices to people who typically haven't gone voices or making sure that a film is made with a younger audience in sense and it seems like they are making films for college age students plus. So kind of that 20 to 35 range. It feels like that's really a target demographic that they're making. Again, that's not the rule. That's not the hard line rule. My grandma enjoyed Ladybird. 
my mom enjoyed the disaster artist these films can be enjoyed by a larger audience but i think they're target demographic the film that's going to the target that's going to make this film a success and keep this company just kind of working and allow them to do what they're doing is this 20 to 35 range and they're like no other in that so with that all said uh I've seen 13 A24 films at this point. Uh, maybe give uh, two. Maybe I missed two that uh, should have been on the list. But from everything that I found, that, that there were 13 films that I had already seen. And I'm going to rank my 10 favorite of them. And then I'll mention which ones uh, I hadn't. I didn't put on this list. Uh, I'll just mention those now. I did not have Hereditary on this list. I just saw it yesterday with Chris, actually. And it was a film that I found unsettling for sure. I also thought it went a little too overboard. And yes, you're allowed to do everything and anything in it. And he, it really did not feel like Ari Aster had any rules. That also did not mean as an audience member, it made for a pleasant viewing experience for me, which is kind of how I felt about the film really impressively made directorial debut from Ari Aster. Really amazing just horror imagery. Not a film that I ever need to rewatch. Not a film that I ever want to revisit. And not a film that I connected with. Uh, and ju just, it was an unpleasant experience all around. That is not a necessarily a criticism of the film. It just means that film was not for me. Uh, I would still give it a positive review, but it's just a film not for me. I did not include The Tragedy of Macbeth. I reviewed that film uh, in 2021, so if you want to go back, you can hear it. Uh, essentially, it's Shakespeare. I get the appeal of it. Uh, did not connect with me. I thought Denzel Washington was great. I thought it was beautiful cinematography all around. It, just, it was Shakespeare at its core, and Shakespeare is not an uh, artist that I necessarily uh, particularly, obviously, respect the language of Shakespeare can just be really hard to get into. So it wasn't a film for me. The last film that I saw that will not be on this list, and this one's going to be a controversial one because I know some people really love this film. I did not include The Green Knight. I was mixed on this film. I like certain elements of it. Uh, it is another film by David Lowry where it's just you have to know some stuff about the film before you go in. I felt, felt like you really need to know some of the story of the knight uh, the fact that he's being tempted and all that to really understand. It's based on a poem, and I I think after reading the poem, reading about it after the film, I liked it a little bit more, but it was still, it just, I thought the pacing was a little off. I thought it was a little slow. The visuals were really good. It looked really stunning to look at. I thought Dave Patel was a really good actor uh, in the leading role. I just think it was a little bit just too caged away in the sense that I had trouble connecting with the film and it's I felt like I was at distance with the film where I just couldn't fully connect with it or enjoy it because it was a little confusing at times so I got lost really easily so I would then go back thinking like wait what just happened in that scene and then I'd kind of lose track of what was going on in the current scene uh, so that's why uh, those three did not make it into my top 10 with that all said let's just kind of jump in to my top 10 which I'm just trying to pull the uh, page right here there we go coming in at number 10 for me 
is the film Lady Bird. Uh, now, I am a Sacramento native. I am based in Sacramento. I've grown up in Sacramento my whole life, so this movie was, of course, a big deal for Sacramento in 2017. It's talked about by all my friends. I know the house where uh, the she always walks by and envies it. Uh, Sarsa Ronan's character walks by and envies it, I should say. I, I know a lot of the settings. I recognize the thrift store. I, I, I knew the town, and it felt like Sacramento, which is a pretty big accomplishment because uh, Sacramento is a really unique town. It's a semi-big town, but it feels also a little bit uh, conservative slash behind the times. Uh, and in that, I mean that it doesn't always feel like culture has always caught up uh, compared to other cities. For instance, one of the greatest effects that they use in this movie is the music. Dave Matthews' band, uh, the song Crash, being so heavily played uh, in the movie. You know, this movie is set in, I believe, 2002, 2003. Crash was number one in the radio in... 1996 that's a very sacramental feeling uh having a song really peak its popularity after everyone else in the world has heard it i i can't tell you the countless amount of songs that i've heard on the radio where they're like new hit from this artist and it's like oh this song came out like a year and a half ago and it's already a pretty big deal that changed obviously a lot with uh spotify giving us the ability to just listen to the songs on our phone and hear the artist but really pre-2010 really felt like we the new music was really dictated by the radio at times and it was just kind of behind the times the film does a great job with sacramento of creating the entrapping feeling of ordinariness sacramento is a pretty ordinary town and in some ways that kind of makes it feel you're like you're trapped there's no where to go Accept the life that you've known. And uh, it leads some people to leave it and never look back. And it also leads people like me to just kind of can't imagine living in another city uh, besides Sacramento. <laughs> Sounds really depressing. I really like Sacramento, guys. I, I'm, this is not a, this film is not a detriment to Sacramento. It just, it captures a feeling of time, 2003, and captures, I think, some of the emotions young people feel in Sacramento. And that's how I related to the film. Uh, the film works at its core when it's a relationship between the mother and daughter. Uh, both Marley Matlin, uh, not Marley Matlin, no, is that, is that her name? Marley Matlin is the mother and Sarsay Ronan have just a great relationship in this film that's explored heavily and they're both not likable characters at times. It allows that these characters to have fatal mistakes and it allows for these characters to just feel human and it feels just really true. The arguments that you have with your parents growing up, them not seeing the world how you see it, and and vice versa, the parents just wanting you to do certain things because they know it's best for you. But it's also at times where it's just like the mother is just straight up wrong in some scenes. It allows both of those sides to exist. The mother is an inherently good person. That doesn't mean that her relationship with Ladybird is particularly good or healthy. There is development in relationships that have to be. Uh, changed and evolve throughout the film and it creates something really beautiful uh the reason it's so low on my list uh again i'm clearly giving this film a good review um and this i'll just say this point this point is in favor of the movie 
but it is a film made for a female perspective audience. Uh, someone, uh, a female watching this movie is going to relate to this film a lot more than I am going to relate. I don't have some of those female experiences, obviously, because I am a male. That does not make it a bad movie by any means. In fact, it's actually a strength that somebody could relate to this movie so poignantly. And for me, I appreciate those aspects of the film, but it also means some of the emotion doesn't fully connect with me as it should. So it's one of those terms where I appreciate this movie. It doesn't always connect with me as it will connect to other audience members. Uh, they do a great job of, I still think, making it broad enough where um, someone like me is able to watch this film, feel parts of that relationship uh, in our family uh, growing up and all that. But really, at its core, it, it is the story of a mother-daughter. So there is going to be that kind of disconnect for me, but it's that's kind of the charm of this movie, and I think it's well done. Coming in at number nine is the film The Lighthouse, which is uh, by Robert Eggers. Now, I will say that he has three films, and I think this is the lesser of his three films. But the reason I enjoy this film is because of the performances. Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe are on another level of performances in this movie. Uh, Dafoe, in particular, is scary terrifying in this movie. Uh, just in his unbalance, the way he he just he transforms into this lighthouse keeper uh, with the old English jargon, uh, with his accent, with just the stories he tells. He feels like a guy who's just been so withered away by the storms that he just struggles to connect with people, and he struggles to know what a human interaction is, and it just comes between them so well when Pattinson comes there and kind of becomes the perfect foil for this guy. Uh, I already said with Hereditary that some of the unpleasant, disgusting natures of that film didn't fully work for me. I think that's just the case of sometimes you can't define something as, is this good or bad or what do you find disgusting and unpleasant? I can't define it unless I see it. In Hereditary, there's scenes in there where I'm like, that is unpleasant in a negative way for me, and it takes me out of the movie. In other cases, like uh, The Lighthouse, I found some of that same stuff deeply unpleasant, disgusting, and bonkers, but it completely worked for me. Some of the imagery is just as scary as one or the other, even to a degree comparable at scenes. And yet one of them works and one of them doesn't. That's just the pure case of what do I connect with? What do I like? And that can also be, do I like the story being told? It's a factor of all of those things. What I will say about The Lighthouse is it is an art house movie through and through. Most audiences will not like this movie. Straight up, will not like this movie. Uh I respect the craft of this movie immensely. The cinematography, the score, the performances, the lighting of this movie are just incredible. There's stills in this movie that I will never be able to get out of my head. Willem Dafoe standing over uh, Pattinson, uh, if you've seen the movie, you know exactly the scene I'm talking about, is an image that will be burned in my head for the rest of my life. 
And like I said, I like this exploration of these two characters of where it goes. Does it go really weird? Yeah, it really does. Most audiences are going to hate this film, and I don't even particularly love this film. I respect the hell out of this film, though, so I'm giving it a positive review for that, and it makes number nine just for the daringness of this film. I've never seen a film quite like this, and honestly, Willem Dafoe just carries the hell out of this movie, as does Pattinson. Just, again, an excellent exploration of these two characters, and the, the... it's a film that explores isolation and what isolation can do uh, to one's mental health. Uh, coming in at number eight is actually another Robert uh, Eggers film, and that's The Witch. Uh, the, the Witch is one that I could see jumping up actually a little bit higher. I was debating putting it at seven. I have reasons for putting the film that I did at seven higher. But I think the thing about The Witch is I just saw it yesterday with Chris. It's a movie like The Northman, where it's almost impenetrable at times. It's a film where Eggers just expects a lot of his audience, especially that they have some knowledge of history and understanding of Puritan culture. The more you know, the better you're going to like this film. Uh, Luckily, as someone who studied Puritan society, because again, I was a history major in film, and I spent one class that was basically dedicated to pre- uh, revolution american revolution american society so i learned a lot about the puritans so this that did work for me so some of those scenes where it's just like i don't get what's going on i got what was going on i knew exactly what they were trying to do uh the witch is a slow burn and it feels really slow at times it takes a while for the true like i guess horror aspects of this film to kick in but when they do i thought they kicked in in such a great way uh do be warned and people who've seen this film know what i'm talking about this is not a typical horror film by any means uh it is one where i think you watch this film and you think it's going to be a witch kind of going around causing chaos it kind of is but it's not really uh this is a really clear depiction of what the devil does in according to Puritans uh, laws in society where the devil doesn't necessarily like show himself, but he's proing the fire. He's, he's, you know, he's poking at something. He's causing issues. He's causing conflict, but it's just kind of subtle. It's just one change in mannerism. One thing that causes another issue, one thing that it all kind of reveals and lights itself in this big fire that just burns and destroys everything. And that's what this film is. It is one where devil is picking and choosing his spots to create tensions and fears uh so while nothing happens in the film once something happens in the film everything happens and that's the best way to describe this film i really don't want to give away the ending for this film because i don't think enough people have seen this film uh but yeah it it does such a great job of that and also i can just say as uh, a believer myself in uh christianity what they do really well is this kind of over-the-top fear of hell dictating your life where the idea of sin and all that coming into your life it dictates how you choose and then when something happens it goes it leads you kind of awry uh which is not a particularly christian concept the concept of fear of god is very different from a fear of hell uh but this these people in this film are living out of a fear of damnation and thus every choice that they make is very clear that it is out of that one fear 
And uh, like I said, anyone who's grown up in this type of society or knows these uh, effects, this film's going to ring even truer for you uh, as it did for me. I never found this film as gratuitous also as I did some of the other A24 films such as Hereditary. There is one scene that's really violent and disturbing, but I did find that it fit the story in a meaningful way. And in not showing it, I actually think it would have been a lesser film, where in the case of Hereditary, in that one scene, again, if you've seen Hereditary, it's really basically the end of the first act. You know the scene? It's really disturbing scene. It's scarred in my mind, and I don't want it to be scarred in my mind. I really don't want it there. And I don't also know, like, if you need it to linger as long as it does, I'll, I'll do a review on Hereditary at some point. Uh, but yeah, I thought the horror, or should I say the graphic, gratuitous sequences in this film served it a little bit more uh, in a narrative structure. The other thing that, before I move on from The Witch, is that the performances in this movie are crazy good, with Anya Taylor-Joy and Ralph Ineson as father daughter their relationship it's so interesting to explore and when it goes basically to hell it goes really bad really south and these two characters really just sell the family dynamic uh of these i believe it's six family members so yeah i was really enchanted by the witch and definitely of recommendation if you haven't seen it i think it's a really good one and if you like the northman i think it's kind of the same style of the northman albeit a much smaller budget but those same sensibilities that eggers brings into the northman is found here uh this time in an american puritan society all right coming in at number seven for me is the film red rocket and this is a film that came out the end of last year and the film follows a low-life porn star named Mickey, who moves back to his hometown of Texas. And there he meets a 17-year-old girl that he wants to make his muse and make her the next big porn star. Talking about controversial uh, things that A24 is willing to do, this kind of feels like Boogie Nights, but even sleazier. Uh, upon initial viewing of this film, I found this film deeply unlikable. Simon Rex, who was the guy from the scary movie films, who really just this film made his comeback, uh, it feels like, and I hope to see him working again. He really plays a scumbag so convincingly, yet there's something about this character that kind of keeps you slightly rooting for him. And I don't know what it is because he's a terrible person, but there's like a little bit of charm that he's just kind of able to have you not on board with him, but tolerate what he's doing at scenes where you're just like, okay. What are you going to do next? It's kind of this like disgusting interest that you have in the guy where it's like, I don't, I don't want anything that you have, but I'm curious to see what you're going to do next. Uh, Red Rocket is a very symbolic film uh, and one that I think the symbolism can at times feel so distant from the audience. When you're watching the film, I think it's really easy to just be what is the point and realize that there's a much bigger story that's being told completely through imagery or the story, but never actually being ex never being stated. For instance, and spoiler alert, there's the scene where uh, Simon Rex's character causes a huge car crash. It's kind of the big reveal at the end of the second act. And it's kind of the perfect metaphor for this character where he's not at fault for the crash, but he 
he's so manipulating of the person that is in charge of the crash that it kind of feels like despite him not being the guy who did it, he had a, he influenced that car crash and he has such a grip on everyone that it feels like uh, he is a vehicle for their action. So while he's not at fault for this crash, technically speaking, it feels like he was the reason this accident happened. And that's kind of the really just the metaphor of this film. It's a guy who never coerces anything necessarily out of people in the sense that, you know, his relationship with the character of Strawberry, who's the person that he's trying to convince become a porn star basically and take to Hollywood, it's completely consensual. He never assaults her in any way. Uh, all of his actions are consensual, but it's the fact of what he does in the movie where it feels like he's so manipulating of her and he corrodes her. See, he's almost taking her spirit and her innocence and kind of corroding it down to the point where then she would be willing to uh, do this with him and kind of just trust in this low life that he is. He's not a good person and he's just, he's doing it. Uh, and it's kind of the issue of the whole film uh, there. And there's a few things right away that obviously makes you root against uh, Simon Rex's character. The fact is she is 17 in the movie uh age of consent in texas means that she is old enough to consent it still feels very skeezy which is obviously uh by design and like i said it's just a movie that the more and more i watched i thought about it i ended up liking it i've only watched it the one time and after watching it, i'm like i didn't particularly care for this film day or two later still thinking about that film still thinking about that scene thinking about how that plays how that shows this arc of the character doing this uh how it influences that event the relationship between him and strawberry the fact of that strawberry is just such a she's the only real good character in a world of just trash terrible people who are corroding something so innocent it's almost sin being stepped upon in the world almost an, a metaphor of adam and eve where uh, temptation comes and the temptation completely destroys life and that's what this film feels like often where it's just simon rex is the ultimate tempter in this movie and when she falls into his temptation it corrodes and it destroys and that's what becomes of strawberry's life you don't assume positive things are going to come when she hangs out like with a character like him and it just as the film goes on the realization of who he is and that he is incapable of change really is the selling point of the movie this is there is no re, there is no redemption for this character and there's never even a, a sense of redemption there's never something where you're like oh yeah that makes him a better person everything he is doing is to serve his sole purpose and it's what i liked about the film it's again not going to be a film for everybody with the subject matter uh it's a really dark comedy uh and yeah i i found myself thinking about this film uh even after re-watching it uh which if i had just written my review that day and shot it you know two hours after watching the film probably don't give it a particularly high review uh after thinking about it even longer definitely going a little bit more positive with it so that's my number seven red rocket my number six is a film that actually came out this year, which is called X, which 
I already did a review of this. It's on my channel, The Beniverse, on YouTube. So if you want more in-depth thoughts about it, uh, check it out there. But X, I think the thing that works so well about it is it is just truly a great throwback to the slasher genre. Uh, it's fun. It's sexy. It's scary. Fun performances all around with just darkly funny and sinisterly brutal scenes in it. It just it works on all those levels of just kind of being a great throwback to seventies slasher films. Uh, Mia Goth makes the most of her performance as this Jenna Ortega and uh, Kid Cudi just being crazy funny in this movie, showing a comedic range that I didn't know that he had. And what I when I left watching this movie, and again I'm not going to give any spoilers about this movie because I I don't think it's out on streaming yet or on VOD. Ty West is the master of horror intention, and it's kind of just shows the perfect use of the Chekhov's gun, where if you're going to introduce something early, you need to pay it off later, which makes every death feel satisfying. So that's all I'll say about X. It's a deeply just fun movie. It's That's what it is. Out of all the A24 films, I'd say this is one of the more fun movies that you can watch. And I think it's one of the easier selling horror movies to it, where it's, it's just a good old slasher film where it's uh, a group of porn stars being chased by slashers. Uh, again, not going to necessarily be for your grandparents. Don't watch it with your grandparents, but uh, for high school, college students, I think they're going to get a blast out of this movie. All right. There was a mistake when I was recording this episode. And that was, I just completely skipped over my number five, which is The Disaster Artist, directed and starring James Franco, where it is the real-life story of the making of The Room, the worst movie ever made. Uh, it is based on the book The Disaster Artist. Again, this is a movie Branson and I talked really early on in our uh, podcast. I believe it's like within the first 10 episodes, we had guest Dan Janjigian, who played Chris R. in The Room, join us for that episode and i i so i've already talked about this film at length so i'll just reiterate some of the points again to explain why it's so high on my list james franco gives a really great performance as tommy wiseau where we get to see the human character of tommy or as human as we can with a character like him he is uh he's a human he has his fatal flaws it all seems like he is working for the intention of good and wanting to make a good movie and be loyal to his friend uh, played by, uh, in the movie, uh, James Franco's brother, Dave Franco. So yeah, it is a really touching movie about friendship. It's fun for people who know Hollywood, who know want to know more of what it's like to make a film, and for people who already have a, an understanding and a relationship with the movie The Room, it's even more of a blast. But this movie doesn't need that to be still good. You can still enjoy this movie even if you haven't seen The Room because of how human these characters are and their relationships with one another. And yeah, it's a really impressive film overall. Really funny, crazy funny scenes, in fact. Great cameo appearances throughout, whether that is Zac Efron playing Dan or whether that's Josh Hutchinson, smaller uh, people appearing like Brian Cranston or Kevin Smith and J.J. announcing the movie. All of it makes for a really fun film about filmmaking so if you really like that type of style of film or if you really just want to see what it's like on set of a film this is a great one for you number four is a movie that i've also talked about on this uh channel 
uh, really early episode of Ben and Brand see a movie, and that is Bo Burnham's Eighth Grade. Uh, and this is another film that I think really hits all the sensibilities of uh, what A24 excels at. It's a movie made for a young obvi- audience. It is a movie made by a really popular comedian in Bo Burnham, who's kind of reinventing himself as a director in this and as a writer, really just proving that this guy is not a just a comedian because this film is not a comedy. It's a very dramatic coming-of-age story. Uh, what I like about this film is one, of course, the amazing directorial debut from Bo Burnham. Bo Burnham does some really just amazing work in this film. Just this film feels so intimate, and the performances just feel so natural. It's a film that's just so cringy that it's it's best strength. Bo Burnham just delivers the experience of eighth grade of middle school so well, and just the uncomfortability of puberty. Uh, it also just has it shows a little bit more in him where there's sequences of tension. One in particular, uh, and spoiler alert, there's one in particular that happens in a car where you think that the main girl uh, played by I.C. Fisher, uh, she's going to get assaulted. It doesn't come to fruition, but it's a deeply unsettling scene. It's really uncomfortable. You're left in a place of just like kind of just fear and just disgust after the scene. And it's again, one of those things where, uh, Everyone who's grown up knows some of these feelings, uh, but in that scene in particular, uh, women are going to recognize that feeling more than guys do. And uh, it's the sad reality, but it's also just a discussion being had within the film and one that I think then transcended into further pop culture because remember, this film comes out in 2018, a few months after Me Too, so it's kind of the first like real time we have to grapple with what it looks like uh, post the Me Too I don't want to say post the Me Too movement, but kind of post the reveal of people like Kevin Spacey, like obviously we knew Harvey Weinstein, but what happens with James Franco, the accusations made with Dustin Hoffman, it kind of just brings these things forward. And this scene really just makes you confront it and realize the, the largeness of the situation, how present it is, how present it is in for young uh, women specifically, women in general, but in this case, uh, how prevalent it is with uh, minors. And it's a really shocking, uncomfortable scene. And it just makes for just, it's kind of the critical scene of this film that gives the film, that kind of redefines what this film is from a coming of age to a little bit more of a dramatic take on it. I really liked what Bo Burnham does. Again, uh, really brief thoughts. If you want to check out my eighth grade review with Branson on Ben and Branson movie, I think it's like episode four or something. We did that really early on. Uh, number three, number three is a movie called everything everywhere all at once, which uh, I'm sure you've heard of. It came out, uh, I think about a month and a half ago. And I'm not going to talk about this movie because it sounds like I'll be having a guest on to talk about this movie in the next month or two. So I don't want to really hit some of the points that I'm going to hit at that. I have my spoiler free review of it on my YouTube channel, but I'll just hit with some of the things uh, that I think make this film so high up on the list. It's so wholly unique and inventive. It's a film that you've never seen in all the best way possible. It's a great performance from the cast, crazy, spectacular action sequences. It's just a lot of fun to be had, but what uh, really drives the point of this movie home and why it works so well 
is its human element that it's a story between mother and daughter which guides the whole movie and is the point of the movie so in all that sense i really liked what this movie was i really liked the inventive i thought the daniels brothers did a great job michelle yo is just excellent in this film and it's a great blend of action comedy satire uh, and multiversal sci-fi fun that uh, it's just such a genre mixing film that works spectacularly and it's a film that when you hear some of the things that happen in the film you're like there's no way this works and yet it works to great effect so that's my review of everything everywhere all at once uh, for me I'm calling it my third favorite A24 film oh, we're almost done we're coming into the final two uh, so my next film Coming in at number two is the 2015 film Room, starring Brie Larson and Jacob Tremblay. And this film just hits me on an emotional level. It's the film that I've cried the most out uh, watching. Uh, Brie Larson and Jacob Tremblay, they just rip your hearts out in a movie that follows the character of Ma, played by Larson, who's kidnapped and raped daily for seven years, leading to her pregnancy and birth of her son, played by Jacob Tremblay. It is a movie that is as heartbreaking as it is uplifting. It shows the strength of the human spirit, especially when it's juxtaposed to the evil, this and cruelty of her captor uh, and raper. And it's just a film that it's it shouldn't be a film that I rewatch often, but I end up finding myself rewatching scenes from this movie. Uh, the escape sequence uh, in this film is just tense. You're left there and you're just, you're so scared. You care about these characters so much. And when spoiler alert, spoiler alert, the reunion happens between the characters of Ma finally being freed from capture it's really beautiful it it breaks my heart every time and it's so beautiful and it's brie larson delivers a tour de force performance this mall in the film and it captures the story of during during her imprisonment but it also places heavy or even more emphasis on the aftermath what it means to be a survivor what that looks and means like in the struggle that comes with something so traumatic happening to you. And just the fact that it's not that this character has it all together by obviously, because of course she could never, and it shows the struggle that she faces. It shows the suicidal tendencies. It shows her suicide attempt in this film. And it just, and in all of it, it just shows that that is this survivor mentality. It's, it is the struggle that comes and that getting through that just that adversity is something so amazing and so powerful and uh just it like i said it really captures the survivor's story i think is what i'm trying to say where it's just it's a film that places uh just the love and attention of what it's like to then come home and i think that's the part of the movie that's just so engrossing and beautiful heartbreaking yet uplifting all of that so room is my number two and coming in at number one, and anyone who knows me knows that this film was going to be my number one. The Safdie Brothers film, Uncut Gems, starring Adam Sandler. Uh, I love this film. I've There's not a day that goes by where I don't think about Adam Sandler in this film. That's a, probably an over-exaggeration, but also slightly true. <laughs> uh, 
Sandler gives the performance of a lifetime as Howard Ratner. I would honestly put this up there as if you had to look up 25 best performances ever given by an actor. I don't know how you don't put Sandler in in this film. What he does is truly spectacular in this film. Uh, This is a film that follows just a degenerate gambler who just keeps going down the hole and trying to make bigger bets and bigger bets that all just leads to something. And uh, there might be some spoilers in this. So if you haven't seen Uncup Gents, please skip this section because I don't want to spoil some of the surprises for this movie. It's a movie about gambling addiction, and we are literally sucked into his addiction, and we just feel as depraved as he does, where we're rooting for this guy to essentially destroy his life. There's no happy ending that can come with Howard continuing to gamble and gambling, yet we're just kind of feeding into it. We're like, yeah, let's do it. Like, let's go. Like, it kind of feels like you're just like, you're just the adrenaline's there. Like, you're like, yeah, let's take another. Let's go. Let's go. Let's try again. Let's do it. Let's gamble. Let's try. Yeah. He has to take that. Like, we're just like, and we know we're discussing it. We know as an audience member, we should not be rooting for this, but it makes us root against our own sensibilities and really just, it captures the feeling of addiction. It's a movie where enough is never enough and the character can never win. The hole he keeps digging is only growing bigger and bigger. And he's only digging himself further and further into it. Uh, and when what happens to him happens at the end of the film, it's the only logical conclusion that can come of a character because there is nothing satisfying that is going to come out of this guy's life. There is nothing that can pull him out of it. He is so clearly far gone in his gambling addiction and it has become so dangerous that there's nothing that can pull him out. And he's not even trying. This is not a character who's trying to be a better guy. This is a character and we're following him in his downfall, uh, which is honestly, we're just following the last few days of his downfall because it's been a downfall that's been progressing. We follow him. Like I said, it's a film that starts up at the end. Uh, we don't need the backstory. We don't you know, need to know how this character became. He is this character. And the best way to describe this film and the director is the Safety brothers direct the film that can best be described as bottled up chaos on screen. It is just chaotic in the, everything that it captures. Uh, people are talking over each other. Everyone's screaming and yelling. The editing is quick cut and the uh, character of Howie is just talking to like 10 different peoples in 10 different directions going on at once. It's best described as sensory overload, where it's so overbearing yet just encapsulating. Uh, And I found it riveting. And it's like I said, it's just so chaotic and so unnerving and everything happening. Like I said, it's just uh, I've never done cocaine uh i've talked to people who have i've talked to people who've had addictions to cocaine uh everything that they describe of the effects of it it feels like what this movie is uh sensory overload you just you got to keep going down and down and it doesn't matter what's happening you don't have a care of what's going on because you're so locked in on this this one thing that's what this movie is uh one of the most brilliant things about this movie it's a movie where we learn at the very beginning for this character of howie that he may have colon cancer and within five minutes we as the audience forget that this guy might have colon cancer and we're just like oh yeah that's not a big deal because that's not a big deal in the movie he's so much else is happening that it doesn't matter it's like it's like the 15th biggest worry that character has this day which just kind of gives credence to the anxiety that this film builds up and the craziness of this film this film's excellent if you have not seen uncut gems check it out Adam Sandler tour de force performance. Anyway, those are my top 10 favorite A24 films, which leads us over to the final segment of the show, which is 
the great debate. Uh, let me get some water before I do this. I'll breeze through these because I don't have a ton to talk about, but I'll explain how I'm doing the great debate this week. So I just decided I wanted to talk about actors that I would like to see in an A24 production. This is in no apparent order, but uh, I'll just go into it. Uh, one of my 10 is, and I'll, I'll just start from 10, I guess. Steve Carell. Uh, he is an actor that I think is a little bit too tied to Adam McKay uh, in the sense that I like what he's doing in these films. It's just that I need to see a little bit more from him because I think he's so good. I think he's so scary in the film Foxcatcher from 2014 that I would like to see him work in an A24 where he's really allowed to explore something a little bit more sinister, a little bit darker, just whatever A24 has. He feels like an actor that could kind of perfectly have like one of those, oh, that's another layer to Carell's acting that we didn't know, similar to what Sandler did in Uncut Gems. Coming in at number nine is Chris Hemsworth. Uh, I've obviously really liked Chris Hemsworth as the uh, actor Thor. He's had a struggle where he hasn't really broken out into a ton of films outside of Thor. I found him really charming and great in the film Rush, but besides that, outside of Thor, he doesn't really have a lot of films. I'd like to see him go in a little bit of a different direction. I think A24 makes sense for him as an uh, actor to try and get in one of these projects and just try something new and unique. Uh, coming in at number eight is Jake Johnson. Uh, no real explanation besides he just feels like a guy who's kind of making his name in independent cinema after starring in New Girl. Uh, he's a guy who just made uh, was in the film last year, Ride the Eagle, which was a very small budget film, but it's just like if that's the type of films that he's interested in making, I think that co-aligns well with the values of A24. So I think Jake Johnson would make a lot of sense. Number seven, this is just purely based on, I guess like it's kind of a cheat because I'm not really calling him an actor in this sense. He's more of the director. Uh, but it's just somebody that I would like to see with even less restraints than he already has. And he already has very little restraints. I'd like to see what Taika Waititi could do with a studio like A24, where it's really... It is completely his picture. Now, I think Jojo Radford is completely his picture from Foxlight's from Foxlight. Uh, so it's arguable whether he needs to even go to a studio like A24. I trust what YTD is doing, and I think he's been already making some great films. So it's not like he needs A24. I would just be curious to see like what his what the studio would be willing to let him do and what he's trying to do and just really capture something interesting for Matiti to add on to an already impressive career of which he is one of my favorite actors. Uh, coming in at number five, I have Zendaya. Uh, I think Zendaya is doing everything basically right as a young actress already. I think she uh, working in projects bigger like uh, Spider-Man, but then also making her name known in a little bit more art house blockbuster films like Dune, but then also being in films like Malcolm and Marie. Uh, I think she's doing it all right. I think she could also use a little bit of a change of pace convention. And I think th her sensibilities that we see in Euphoria could really play over well to the sensibilities of A24, thinking of what A24 was able to uh, change the topic and discussion around actresses like Selena Gomez, Jenna Ortega. Uh, so I'd like to see her in one of these styles of movies. Again, not necessarily someone who needs to work with this uh, studio, but I think could definitely be well due 
to make a great film with A24, and one that it feels like is going to happen relatively soon. Uh, coming in at number, I believe it's five for me, is Robert Downey Jr. Uh, this is a guy who, of course, was the is the biggest actor probably alive right now, just solely based on his performances, uh, Tony Stark in the MCU. He's also a guy that outside of the MCU from 2008 to 2000, he ends the MCU in 2019. He hasn't had a ton of really big films. He's had uh, Tropic Thunder, which came out the same time as Iron Man. He had the Sherlock Holmes films, which were fun blockbusters. But besides that, like his own independent film, The Judge, didn't particularly work out. I like that film, and I thought it gave a really good performance, but it just really didn't capture the audiences like I think they were wanting. Now, he's a hard one because I know he and his wife have their own production company, so going over to a studio like A24 to make an independent film might seem like counterproductive for him uh, with his own studio, but he's just an actor that I would really like to see push himself in a film like this and really just could be used to as a reminder of how great Robert Downey Jr. is as an independent actor allowing to make his own choices. Think of what he did with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang or Zodiac right before he becomes Iron Man. I think he can do a lot of that same similar stuff in an A24 production. Coming in at number... Uh, one, two, three, four. Coming in at number four is another person who I just think could really uh, work with uh, a studio like A24, and that's Sarah Hyland from Modern Family. She played the uh, eldest daughter of the Dumfies in Modern Family. Uh, I think her sensibilities are so aligned with uh, A24 sensibilities. I think what she does as an actress... Uh, some of the character beats that she hits at Modern Family, she has kind of the look. She's basically, uh, when I'm thinking of X, it's like, oh yeah, she could have been one of those actresses we see in X, or she could be one that we see in like Bodies, 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 which has comes out this summer and stars Pete Davidson. It just feels like she kind of has this like kind of artistic, weird, young sensibility about her. And she's an actress that I really like, but it's, I feel like she's going to have trouble being... I, my thing for her... And I don't know how great of an actress she is. I I only really know her from Modern Family, which she's really good, but that doesn't necessarily mean she can transcend into film or even other shows outside of Modern Family. A lot of actors don't. But I think that she has the talent. And again, I think it's the case of right now she's typecast as her character from Modern Family. And she just feels like that young actress that could use a studio like A24 to kind of help escape that mold. I really like her as an actress. I think she's crazy charismatic and i'd like to see her do something like that coming in at number three is the man the myth the legend himself nicholas cage now this guy feels like he is in the middle of a comeback with pig and uh the unbearable weight of massive talent right now so i'd be really interested to see him do something uh with a24 again a studio that I i've defined the traits and characteristics you want to get the most unpredictable actor in the world, get Nicolas Cage. You never know exactly what he's going to do. He's going to deliver something unique every time, and he's going to try his butt off uh, regardless, and he's going to treat the film with the utmost respect. Put him in this formula. See what happens. I think the formula of letting whatever filmmaker actors want to do what they want to do 
and Nicolas Cage is going to just make for a partnership that would be legendary. And yeah, Nicolas Cage just seems like a perfect actor to be in an A24 film. Coming in at number two is another guy who's just kind of been stuck uh, post his big breakout, which is John Boyega. Really talented actor uh, before Star Wars with Attack on the Block, uh, then starring in uh, Detroit, with, directed by Catherine Bigelow, which was in the middle of the Star Wars franchise. Uh, this is the case of did Star Wars destroy this guy's career? I really like him in the first Star Wars movie, and then Disney really just dropped the balls uh, with him as an actor. They didn't know what to do. They didn't have a clear story for Finn. Uh, and he kind of just gets forgotten in a franchise that really felt like it was centered around him and Daisy Ridley. Uh, and I think he's such a talented actor, and I would just like to see him go the more independent route. And again, he's just a guy. When I was thinking of a lot of these guys, it was just simply who kind of just either needs a boost in their career or not even a boost, but just who needs something different in a reinvention and for people to take them in a different light. And John Boyega just seemed like a guy so in need of it right now again don't know how he's doing i don't know if he's in any other films i think he's a really talented actor and i just feel like a film studio like a24 can allow him to kind of build himself back up after a really rocky relationship that he had with disney and the star wars franchise as a whole and then my number one and give me one second and my number one the actor that I think is so in need to be working with A24, the one that I would like to see the most, and the guy who's just, he, I he's had a few career changes, or not career changes, but he's already had a few identity shifts in his career, and I think he's might be due for another one because I think he's now getting typecast again. It's Zac Efron. Now, obviously, Efron started as a Disney star. He kind of builds his resume as the romantic lead in young high school comedies like 17 again uh, of course then starring in three more uh, or three high school musical films in total then he kind of gets uh, a reinvention when he stars as the frat guy in uh, Seth Rogen's neighbors uh, alongside Seth Rogen he gets the, a lot more frat look he gets to be a little bit more raunchy really gets to showcase his talents as a comedic actor and I thought that was the route that it was, we were going to see him go and that was the route we did see him go largely uh with films like uh baywatch of course baywatch then was a huge flop and wasn't particularly funny and there was just other films like that then he tries to reinvent himself a little bit as a dramatic actor with the ted bundy film which was a passion project for him which didn't also fully work and he he was just he was stuck uh, and it feels like he's stuck. Now, he's had successful films in that range. Of course, The Greatest Showman being one. But again, that really played to, it felt like more of his high school musical sensibilities. And it just feels like this is a guy who wants to make interesting films, whether it's that DJ movie he did in 2015, which I'm blanking on the name of it right now, uh, While We Were Young, I think, or something like that, something along those lines. Uh, or whether it's just, like I said, he's had a few roles uh and I guess technically I'm cheating because he has starred in an A24 film, not starred, but he was uh, the character of Chris R slash Dan Jan Jiggian from The Room, which he then played in The Disaster Artist. So he was technically that actor. That's such a minor cameo role that I don't really consider it him working with A24. But yeah, he's a guy that I just think is in need of just kind of another career in, 
reinvention because I think he's just so typecast right now. And I think the guy's actually pretty immensely talented and I want to see this guy keep working. And I don't want this to kind of just become another faded away guy. He has the looks, he has the comedy, he has the dramatic chops. He has a little bit more of a scary, intense personality that we saw in that Ted Bundy film, even though it didn't fully work. I think we saw some of those characteristics that just make for what could be a really great special actor. And I want to see him. I think the danger of him is he feels like a guy that could then be typecast really easily in like a superhero film that doesn't fully work. Kind of what Channing Tatum had the issue of recently before he had kind of his career come back this year. Just the guy where it's like, these are the films he makes. He then Channing Tatum then gets stuck with Gambit, which doesn't go off the ground, never goes anywhere. And I just don't want that being what happens to Zach Efron. Basically, I don't want him being in a Sony extended universe Spider-Man movie. I want him doing something more interesting than that uh and yeah i think 824 would be a great direction for his career to go so with that all said those are the 10 actors that i would like to see work with 824 so thank you all for listening that is my show on 824 as a studio uh my favorite films from them and the actors and again what just makes 824 such an interesting company uh, I will be seeing their film Men sometime this week, which means I'll have a review out for that soon. And again, next week for Ben and Brancia movie, I am joined by Spencer Roth Rose uh, from The Onion and from a very funny podcast called Blackout Dates, uh, which is a satire on the uh, company uh, Movie Pass. Which, if you were a movie fan between 2017 to 2018, you know what Movie Pass is. But yeah, with that all said, guys, check it out. It's going to be a really great episode he's a really funny talented guy so i'm really excited to be talking top gun with him in anticipation for top gun maverick so guys thank you for checking out ben and brand see a movie this week this is episode 64 my name is ben friedman take care bye bye